Good morning, everyone. Len and I, uh, yesterday afternoon, were so sad to learn that, that Dave isn't feeling well, and I'm glad to be here with you in worship today. I want you to know that I gave it my best effort last night to write a sermon on the passage Dave had picked out, and I realized around 10 p.m. I was running the risk of malpractice. And so, for everybody's sake, I chose a sermon I preached a few weeks ago at Witherspoon Street Presbyterian Church with our friends there, and then at our Breaking Bread service that we have here for undergrad and grad students on Sunday night. So I see Maggie and Zach and a couple other Breaking Bread friends. Y'all just 15 minutes, go get a coffee or something. Everybody else, you have to sit through it with me, okay? We're going to get through it together. But to give you a little bit of framing and introduction, um, in Lent, we have been walking through a theme called Jesus and the Jubilee in Mark. The Jubilee is a concept in the Old Testament of God's proclamation of a season of justice. When wrongs are righted, ancestral lands are returned, there's an economic kind of clearing of the table so that people who have been suffering can flourish. There's a little bit of a reset button hit in the promise of the Jubilee. And some biblical scholars see in the Gospel of Mark that some of the themes of the Jubilee are shown and fulfilled in Jesus, who he is and what he said and did. And so this theme of the Jubilee in Jesus's ministry is what we've been talking about at Breaking Bread throughout Lent. So for that reason, our scripture today is changed and we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, "Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone?" At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, Stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The title of this morning's sermon is Through the Roof. Through the Roof. You know how there are some songs that you listen to over and over again that help you get through a tough season? 
number of years ago, I was working on my PhD down the street at the seminary, and I was going through something called our comprehensive exams. And it's this in-between time after you finish taking classes, but before you can do your own research. And for about eight months, I tried to read as many books as I could and prepare for these six whole day long written examinations. And you learn a lot about a specific area of expertise. It equips you to teach courses in your subject. And it is a grind, everybody. You work mostly on your own at this intense pace. And after a while, you start to get a little bit wild eyed and it feels like somebody has pickled your brain and stuck it in a jar on a shelf. At that time, my spouse Len was serving as a pastor at Arch Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And on Sundays, we would drive down together and I would read at Starbucks while she got ready for worship. Most weeks, not every week, but close, our church would sing a gospel hymn by Hezekiah Walker called, I Need You to Survive. Some of the words included, I pray for you, you pray for me, we're all a part of God's body, stand with me, agree with me, we're all a part of God's body. It is God's will that every need be supplied. You are important to me, I need you to survive. If you sing it, it goes, it is God's will that every need be supplied. You are important to me. I need you to survive. Every week during a busy and sometimes lonely time, I had this reminder that I belonged to a community that loved me. I needed to hear it. You are important to me. I need you to survive is a prayer to God, and it's a word we say to one another. Today we're looking at a story from Mark's gospel that's often called Jesus and the Paralyzed Man. Living with a disability in the ancient world meant daily encounters with disrespect and mistreatment. Often someone who couldn't walk had to make their living by begging. And I wonder if the treatment that he received is all that different than what we see when we encounter people walking down 34th Street on our way to Penn Station in Manhattan or around Center City in Philadelphia? Do you think that some of his neighbors ever called him names or told him to find a job or saw him as less deserving as of basic needs than they were? On this day though, some of his friends carried him across town to see Jesus. Because the house was packed with people, they climbed up on the roof of what was probably his friends Simon and Andrew's house, and they started digging. And they had to dig through a thick layer, probably of thatch and clay, and maybe even some wooden beams to fit a person through the roof. And as they lowered the paralyzed man down, people in the crowds, I imagine, had to put out their hands to steady the mat as he came down and was lowered so that he was face to face with Jesus. Jesus looks him in the eye and he says to him, his first word is, your sins are forgiven. You are forgiven. Why? Why would Jesus say that? 
Some New Testament scholars, like N.T. Wright, imagine there might be something comical about this scene. Imagine Jesus talking, and he's talking, and like so many preachers, he's still talking about the reign of God in this packed room. And then, if you listen, there's some light scrabbling and scratching upstairs, and then there's digging sounds and clanging, and maybe a couple of guys cussing and shouting at each other. And then suddenly, there's this new big hole in the roof, and a large mat coming down from the sky, and suddenly a stranger is face to face with Jesus. And it's not lost on me that you have a rabbi who just finished his job being a carpenter, looking up at a new hole in the roof, and he's like, how are we going to fix this? What kind of plaster do I need? You know what the cost of lumber is these days. And as Jesus is looking up there in the ceiling, he sort of snaps out of it, and he looks down and he sees this person he's never seen before looking at him nervously right in the face. It could be that Jesus is saying you are forgiven, and he means it's okay, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay, we're going to take care of it, you're forgiven, don't worry. And part of me kind of likes that. I could get along with a sweaty Jesus. We take the Gospels a little bit too seriously sometimes. I don't mind that Jesus is caught off guard, and that his friends, the brothers Andrew and Simon, are nervous about who's going to patch their ceiling up. But I think that there's more going on here because it turns into a theological argument with the scribes, the religious leaders of Jesus's day about who can forgive and what forgiveness means. Mark is telling us that this story and its reflection on forgiveness is important for us to know as followers of Jesus. I wonder if it's because you are forgiven is Jesus's word to us. It's at the heart of what he has to say to us. That's the new dynamic of our relationship with God and with one another. Maybe that word Jesus has to say is why so many people have gathered to hear Jesus, so much that nobody can even fit through the doorway. Maybe it's that message, your sins are forgiven, that the paralyzed man and his friends wanted to hear so badly. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You belong here. You are important to me. When Jesus says to people, you are forgiven, it's a word that helps us remember our humanity and the humanity of our neighbor. In a 2021 study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, psychology professors from the University of Pittsburgh and Stanford named Karina Schumann and Gregory Walton write about how the practices of offering and asking for forgiveness are a kind of rehumanizing behavior, the opposite of dehumanizing behavior. When we hurt someone else, there's an impulse to justify our behavior, to rationalize it. You and I know this kind of self-talk. We say, they had it coming. Well, if only you knew what they were really like. I don't have to listen to you. Your words don't matter to me anymore. We've turned off parts of ourselves that we need in order to acknowledge that this person is the neighbor, someone we have a relationship with. But an earnest apology, committing to righting wrongs done, listening to someone share how they've been hurt, these are examples of what they describe as rehumanizing behavior. In some sense, we return to our humanity 
by treating the person we've hurt with respect. On the other side, when someone hurts us, our feelings or our sense of self-worth, it's hard to see them as a human being. They become something else, a monster, a threat, a thing. Perhaps even worse, sometimes we believe what the person is saying that's hurt us. We believe the meaning of how they treat us. Schumann and Walton found that practicing forgiveness when we've been hurt by someone can be a process of claiming our humanity when someone else has treated us as less than or undeserving of respect beneath them somehow. Choosing to forgive rather than, for example, to take revenge says something about the forgiver's humanity, that the one who hurt them will not have the last word over their lives or their story. In this way, forgiveness is not about creating a pretend world where someone's actions didn't cause harm, or as if boundaries don't need to exist between people, or even an attempt to try to find a silver, silver lining in behavior that might be appropriately described as cruel. Forgiveness is about finding ways to remember the other person is, nevertheless, a human being. It's about making a humane choice not to respond to wrongdoing with cruelty or evil in turn. Or to put it more elegantly, it's similar to what civil rights leader John Lewis meant when he used to say, hate is simply too heavy a burden to bear. Jesus calls us to cultivate communities where the practices of forgiveness help us see one another as beloved human beings. We need those communities right now in Princeton and in neighborhoods all over America. Len and I have talk, been talking a lot about how new laws passed in our home state of Tennessee have outlawed drag performances in public. Many queer activists are concerned that these new bills are not only a foreclosure of free, creative, joyful, and artistic expression, some have expressed fears that these laws might be used to target trans people as if they were in some way performing drag, as if they were not deserving of respect or not being worthy of dignity and humane treatment. You can hear it in the tone of the voice like we said in our self-talk, I don't have to listen to you. Your perspective doesn't matter to me. I bring this up because I think it's a good time to take a good look at ourselves, to see not only how drag performance has been an ancient and honored expression of creativity across cultures, but also to repent of being afraid of neighbors who invite us to see ourselves in new ways. Or consider the ways that some shelves in school libraries have been emptied of countless books in Florida because of an obsession with removing any uncomfortable truths about the ugly realities of racism in America's history and present day. I believe this is an act of harm to children. It keeps them from having an honest and real understanding of the challenges that we're facing and can address as a nation. How can we say that we're humane if there's no engagement in the practices of forgiveness, of hearing the hurt that people of color have endured in our history, of making an earnest apology, 
of having the courage to make changes that make our society more just. We remind each other of God's forgiveness for everyone whenever we take up the practices of forgiveness with one another. There's another line in that Hezekiah Walker hymn that stayed with me all these years, and it goes, I won't harm you with words from my mouth. I love you. I need you to survive. I love you too. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, to the paralyzed man when he came through the roof, it was also his way of saying to him, I see you. You deserve respect. You belong here. In this way, it's a story that's about healing bodies, but it's also about Jesus healing a person's soul, about Jesus healing a community's soul. Practicing forgiveness helps us imagine how Jesus brings that healing today in and through our life together. Amen.